Hello again and welcome. My name is William Strejcik and this is the Orient Express, a historical podcast focusing on the Middle East region, its politics, historical conflicts and overall development that is much needed in order to fully understand the present-day dynamics of the region and individual countries. Today we are going to look upon the relationship and power balance between the Ottoman Empire, civilian government and military during the times of the First World War and we shall discuss how the Ottoman Empire was ruled during the conflict. So sit back and relax, as you are about to board yet another history episode of the Orient Express podcast. When we endeavor to look on the Ottoman Empire's regime in the comparative context of the major European powers fighting in the First World War, three really major differences stand out even before we begin any detailed investigation. Like all the countries with the exception of the French Republic, the Ottoman Empire was a constitutional monarchy. The constitution of 1876 had never been fully cancelled, but it had been disregarded by the old regime of Sultan Abdul Hamid II for 30 years between 1878 and 1908. It had been fully restored after the Young Turk Revolution of July 1908 and amended in a democratic sense in 1909. The powers of the Sultan to appoint ministers, to dissolve parliament and to intervene in military matters had been much reduced or abolished. However, alone among all the major powers, the Ottoman Empire had undergone a coup d'etat before the war. On 13th of January 1913, members of the Young Turk Committee of Union and Progress, the so-called CUP, had stormed the building at the Sublim Porter while a cabinet session was in progress, forced the Grand Vizier to resign at gunpoint and installed a cabinet they themselves dominated under the former army inspector and war minister Mahmoud Sehvet Pasha. After his murder in June 1913, the committee had appointed one of their own, Said Halim Pasha, as his successor. The second aspect that differentiated the regime in the Ottoman Empire from that of the other belligerent states was that the capital Constantinople had been under martial law since the failed counter-revolution of April 1909. At the time of the mobilization, on 2nd of August 1914, martial law was proclaimed through the country and it remained in force during the First World War, although in December 1917 it was lifted in a number of inland provinces in western and central Anatolia. Martial law was introduced in several other belligerent countries as well, but only after the outbreak of war. In other words, the system of governance of the Ottoman Empire at the onset of war in 1914 was a legacy, not only of the revolution that restored constitutional and parliamentary government in 1908, but also of the measures taken after the counter-revolution of 1909 and of the coup d'etat of 1913. Thirdly, and also as a result of the 1913 coup, the linkages between the government and the armed forces in the Ottoman Empire were exceptional. Enver Bey, one of the original heroes of the revolution of 1908 and one of the initiators of the 1913 coup, was promoted twice in quick succession and appointed to three key positions in 1914. Vice Commander-in-Chief, under the nominal command of the Sultan, Chief of the General Staff and Minister of War. To make sense of the governance of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, it is helpful to understand it in terms of the interaction of three different sets of institutions and actors, in other words, as a triangle. First of all, there are the institutions created or circumscribed by the 1876 or 1908 constitution. 
the dynasty and the court, the cabinet, the chamber of representatives and the senate. Secondly, there are the institutions of the Committee of Union and Progress that were in a sense the legacy of both the 1908 revolution and the 1913 coup, the Central Committee, the General Council, the party and informal structures of decision making. Thirdly, there was the army. On the military side, the unusually central position of Enver had already been pointed out, but apart from this central figure, we obviously have to ask ourselves what was the decision-making role of the war ministry, the general staff and the leading military commanders. And when we look at each of these, we cannot avoid also asking the question to what extent the course of events was influenced by the representatives of the German Empire, who themselves cannot be regarded as a single undivided whole. On the German side, the embassy was one obvious power center, but so were the German military missions sent in 1914 and headed by General Lehmann von Sanders and the Germans on the Ottoman general staff, led by the vice chief Friedrich Bronsart von Schlechendorf. The reigning sultan for most of the war was the former Prince Resat, who had ascended the throne in April 1909 when his elder brother Abdul Hamid II was deposed. The Committee of Union and Progress made an effort to build up Rezat's image as a father of a nation. This started on his ascension when he was given the official sultanic name Mehmed V. This was an explicit reference to Sultan Mehmed II, the conqueror of Constantinople in 1453. Because Rezat ascended the throne as a consequence of the successful repression of the anti-unionist insurrection in Istanbul in April 1909, and the capture of the capital by the Action Army from Macedonia, he was, as it were, the second conqueror of Constantinople. In sharp contrast with the practice of his predecessor Abdul Hamid, the new Sultan, on the initiative of the Committee of the Union and Progress, tried to connect directly with the population. He was sent on visits to the old Ottoman capitals of Bursa and Edirne, and most notably on a tour of Macedonia in 1911, which had for its theme unity of different ethnic elements around the Ottoman throne. On the outbreak of war, his role, not just as father of the country, but particularly as a caliph, was emphasized. Technically, the Sultan was the commander-in-chief, as well as the head of the state, but in reality, he wielded almost no influence, either in civilian or in military matters. This was partly an institutional matter. Constitutional changes after the re-establishment of the pro-unionist regime in 1909 severely limited the Sultan's freedom to appoint and dismiss, interfere in military matters and to dissolve parliament. The civil list was curtailed and many imperial possessions sold off, and the palace itself was put under strict control through the appointment of palace secretaries by the cabinet. With Mehmed Rezat's death on 3rd of July 1918, his younger brother, Prince Vahdetin, ascended the throne as Sultan Mehmed VI. The moment of his accession coincided with the last period in the war when the central powers could still seriously contemplate victory. It is clear that Vahdetin looked for a more active role than his brother had had, and in particular wanted to emancipate himself from the tutelage of the unionist leaders. Yet, he avoided any confrontation with the unionists during the period from August to October, in which it became clear that the war was lost and only appointed a Grand Vizier of his own choice months after the armistice, in January 1919. So, where the warriors are concerned, it can be safely said that the court played no role of significance in the way the Ottoman Empire was governed. Mehmed V Reza did not seek a political role, 
Mehmed VI Vahdet did, but lacked the courage to openly oppose the Unionist leaders even after it had become clear that the war was lost. For the Unionist government that had wielded power since the coup, the main advantage of the state of emergency is that it made it possible to rule through temporary laws that were approved by the cabinet and immediately put into operation. In practice, this made parliamentary scrutiny a hollow phrase. In the first few years after the Constitutional Revolution of July 1908, the Committee of Union and Progress, consisting as it did of military officers and civil servants in their late 20s and early 30s, had not felt capable of taking over the most senior positions in government itself. It had been represented in the cabinets of the years 1908 to 1911, but not in a dominant way and had tried to influence the politics as a pressure group, relying on its influence in the army and its ability to mobilize the street. In the first three years of the war and following its takeover through the coup d'etat of January 1913, the Committee of Union and Progress had become the dominant force. As the war went on, we see a process unfold through which the Committee of Union and Progress strengthened its hold on the cabinet and had less and less use for people who were not from the inner circle. The Unionist takeover was completed in February 1917, when the committee decided to replace Grand Vizier, thus ending the situation in which real power and titular authority rested with different persons. Both chambers of parliament continued to sit throughout the war, but the duration of the yearly sessions was shortened from six months to four in February 1915, something which made the frequent use of a temporary laws described above pretty much inevitable. Elections for the Chamber of Deputies should originally have taken place in 1912, after the dissolution of the previous parliament, but due to the Balkan War, the elections had to be postponed. When they took place in 1914, it was in the post-coup environment and the Committee of Union and Progress was able to score a crushing victory. In the new parliament, the Committee of Union and Progress held 192 seats, with 11 members of the Liberal Opposition and 87 independents, or people whose allegiance is unknown. Throughout the war, the Chamber of Deputies supported the cabinet and its policies without any serious debate. With full control of the court, the cabinet and both houses of parliament, leading Turkish politician Talat Pasha and his circle had little to fear from any political opposition. The forces that could endanger their control of the state came from elsewhere. On the one hand, from the membership and particularly the inner circle of the Committee of Union and Progress, and on the other, from the leaning echelons of the army. To a certain extent, these two overlapped. At the time of the Constitutional Revolution, the Committee of Union and Progress had been a secret society with two to three thousand members, almost all of them from Rumeli, the European provinces. At its 1909 Congress, the committee announced that it would give up secrecy and split into two independent institutions, the society, with members organized in local clubs, and a party consisting of the elected Unionist members of Parliament. The society would continue to be run by an elected central committee, which was charged with maintaining the links between society and party. It answered to the yearly congress, which was often a lively affair, where major issues were openly debated. Coordination between society and party remained a problem, and that is why the 1912 congress decided to create a general council, which was to consist of representatives of the central committee, of the parliamentary party, and of the congress. 
In spite of these elaborate measures designed to create a balance, as well as a degree of transparency, there is little doubt that the Central Committee, which controlled unionist networks in the capital as well as in the provincial centres through appointed responsible secretaries, inspectors and delegates, was the real centre of power. Although the composition of the Central Committee changed over time, Talat remained its most influential member throughout the war. Talat managed to keep his grip on the Central Committee, while at the same time increasing his influence in the Cabinet. The way he did this was through effective management of the factionalism within the Committee of Union and Progress. Talat played the different factions against each other and exerted his influence by taking up a position of arbiter, often speaking one-on-one -on -one with different key figures and giving each the impression that he shared their concerns and that they were being taken seriously. In meetings of the Central Committee of the Unionist Parliamentary Party or at the yearly congresses, he seems to have been able to convince his audience, even when it was very critical and dissatisfied. Talatsu's combination of excellent people skills with tactical awareness and utter ruthlessness made him the most consummate Ottoman politician of his era. After the shattering defeat of the Ottoman armies in the Balkan War, a far-reaching organization of the Ottoman army was undertaken with the assistance of the new German military mission under General Otto Liman von Sanders. This involved the forced retirement of a large number of older officers who were held responsible for the Balkan War debacle. This allowed a younger generation of officers, many of whom had been core members of the Committee of Union and Progress before the Constitutional Revolution, to take over command positions and key positions on the general staff. The central figure in the military leadership, without any doubt, was Enver, one of the most prominent heroes of freedom of the 1908 revolution. After the January 1913 coup, of which he was one of the organizers, he was promoted twice in quick succession to the rank of Brigadier General with the title of Pasha, and appointed as Minister of War and Vice Commander-in-Chief under the nominal command of the Sultan. He also held the position of Chief of the General Staff, although in practice the first Vice Chief, General Bronsart von Schlechendorf, did the day-to-day -day work as Chief of Staff. One could safely say, therefore, that Enver commanded the weakest of the major European armies in the war, but did so with a degree of authority unrivaled elsewhere. Enver's hold over the army, as well as his influence in the cabinet and the central committee, were greatly strengthened by the way the Germans promoted him as the exemplary leader of the new Turkey, as their man in the Ottoman Empire and the best guarantee of the continuation of the Ottoman-German alliance. Under the influence of people like Enver's close personal friends Hans Humann, the naval attaché at the German embassy in Constantinople, Berlin came to see the maintenance of Enver at the head of the Ottoman army as an essential precondition for maintenance of the alliance. This remained true throughout the war, even if Enver's own personal and professional relations with some of the leading German officers, like the head of the German military mission, Lehmann von Sanders, and later the commander of the Yildirim army group, Erich von Falkenhayn, were often difficult. Looking at this issue from the other side, the way the Germans built up Enver as the linchpin of the alliance also seems to have convinced the other unionist leaders, and in the first place Talat, that maintaining Enver was necessary to ensure German support. Having looked at both the civilian institutions of government and at the army, we should also ask questions about the relationship between the two, and particularly about the way these developed during the war years. Civil military relations changed in the belligerent countries under the impact of the war, but in different ways. 
with Talat and his network fully in control of the government and dominant in the Central Committee, and Enver having unchallenged control of the army, the Axis Enver Talat determined the balance of power in the country. Essentially, and in spite of irritations and differences of opinion, this Axis held firm throughout the war. Both men seemed to have accepted the other's vital role in the war effort. When one or the other was out of the capital, the one who remained took over his duties in the cabinet. As in every other belligerent country, in this total war, much of government policy consisted of mobilizing all human, financial and economic resources to support the military in the form of requisitioning, imposition of taxes and forced labor and contracting of loans both internal and with the German allies. The military authorities were given control over transport, including the railways and communications. Maintaining order in the countryside was the task of the gendarmerie, which in wartime fell largely under the war ministry and whose size was increased eightfold during the war. From August 1914 to December 1917, martial law was in force throughout the country and after that in most provinces and the capital, and the military authorities interpreted the jurisdiction of the military tribunals under martial law very broadly. As a result, the military tribunals became completely overburdened and the Ministry of Justice complained that the military authorities were trespassing on its jurisdiction. In July 1916, the jurisdiction of the military tribunals was restricted to homicide and crimes involving the army or state security. With this in mind, there is no denying that as in other countries, the war tilted the balance of power towards the army, but the leaders of the civilian wing of the Committee of Union and Progress never abdicated authority to the extent that the civilian authorities did in Austro-Hungary right at the start of the war or the German ones from early 1917 onwards. It would be going too far to compare the situation in the Ottoman Empire with that in the UK or France, where civilian control remained intact or increased during the war. In the Ottoman Empire, the situation was not one of military dominance over the entire state or one of civilian control over the military, but rather one of segmented authority with Enver and Talat recognizing each other's sphere of influence. Strategic decisions involving the allocation of army units seem to have been the exclusive preserve of Enver and the general staff. They were taken in consultation with the German high command, but not dictated by it, as it was often assumed by the Entente during the war. On the other hand, the Unionist government, with the support of the Central Committee, used the conditions of war to push through a whole range of important legislation without interference from the military, secularizing measures like the transfer of the Islamic law courts and the pious foundations to secular ministries and the changes in the family law, legislation aimed at nationalizing and Turkifying the economy, such as the imposition of Turkish as the sole business language or the law of the encouragement of industry, and of course the deportation of the Armenians to the Syrian desert. Although at the top, Enver and Talat seem to have developed a modus vivendi, further down there were frequent frictions and territorial conflicts between networks attached to these two men. Both analyses show that during the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was neither a military dictatorship nor a state in which final authority rested with a cabinet controlled by parliament. On paper, it was a constitutional parliamentarian monarchy ruled under the provisions of partial law foreseen in the constitution. This allowed the cabinet to rule through temporary laws that were passed by parliament only afterwards. 
In reality, the cabinet was not the main decision-making center either. The central decision-making organ of the Committee of Union and Progress was at least as important. It is there, rather than in Parliament or in the Cabinet, that decisions on key appointments or dismissals were reached. The essential element in decision-making, however, was that the main factions, the civilian wing led by Talat and the military one under Enver, reached consensus. The group that ruled the empire during the war years can better be understood as a complex of different factions and networks that all operated in a bipolar environment. The Poles were Talat and Enver, and although there certainly was a lot of rivalry between their followers, each of these two men, who could not be more different from each other in background and personality, recognized that the other was indispensable in the war effort. This recognition produced a degree of coherence that formed the basis for the Unionist regime in 1914-1918. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. If you liked this episode, I will be more than glad if you leave a rating or if you share it amongst your friends or at social media. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called The Young Turk Governance in the Ottoman Empire during the First World War by Erik Jan Zucker. In this matter, I highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject, since the book contains even more detailed information about the domestic situation in the Ottoman Empire during the Great War. Also, if you found this episode interesting, you can visit my Instagram or Facebook account called the Orient Express Podcast, where I am constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button and share this episode amongst your friends. See you next week with another episode of the Orient Express Podcast.